All right, Revelation chapter number two, and we're just continuing our series. Last year, we, last uh, week, we had kind of an introductory message on uh, these these letters. There's seven letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor. Just to to remind us, uh, there these these were real churches that existed during the apostolic time, early church history. Uh, they're on the sort of the western side of what is modern day Turkey. Uh, right there by the Aegean Sea. And you remember that the Apostle John, who is writing these letters, has been exiled because of his witness, because of his testimony uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's been exiled to a small island out in the Aegean Sea, uh, uh, just off the coast of Turkey there, about 60 miles, uh, the island of Patmos. And he's writing these letters back to these churches now. Uh, the whole the whole book of Revelation is a letter to the churches, but really what we have is kind of a letter within a letter because we have seven individual remarks to different churches. So this morning we're going to consider uh, the letter to the Ephesian church, to the church at Ephesus. And let's begin reading at chapter 2, verse number 1. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These letters are written from Christ to his church. And really in each of these letters, what we find are some things to commend in the church, some things that they're doing well, some areas of strength uh, for most of them. But then there's also these areas where they're not they're not living up to what Christ expects of his church. And so he calls them to repentance in specific areas. And that's what we want to focus on uh, this morning, because I think as we've seen from hopefully last week, we, we saw that really these are letters to all of us, to all churches. Uh, and there are things in each of these letters that we can take and we can think about our church. Where are we at in, in terms of the things that he is critical of in, in those churches? And my prayer, my hope as we go through this series is that we begin to see areas where we are deficient and we do exactly what he calls us to, to do here, to remember where we've fallen from. And to repent, to begin to walk once again in faithfulness. This Ephesian church, their problem is, although they're enduring, although they're standing strong on on solid doctrine, uh, they they have not walked away from the faith, yet they've lost that love and feeling. They've lost the love that they at one time had for the Lord and for others. We look at the Ephesian church and the first thing that we notice As we think back on the New Testament, we notice the pedigree of the church of Ephesus, the the rich history that this church has. Perhaps no other church in church history has as rich a history as the Ephesian church. 
This rich history means that they were well grounded in faithful biblical teaching. Just think back on some of the some of the people who have been a part of this church in in Ephesus, some of the great names from the New Testament, Apollos, uh, Apollos, who uh, was a powerful preacher in the New Testament. In fact, maybe one of the most eloquent uh, preachers that's talked about in in the New Testament really got his start in in the church at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla took him aside. We see that in Acts 18, 24. Uh, it, it says that, that he was an eloquent man. And Aquila and Priscilla who were there in Ephesus, Paul left them in Ephesus to build the church. They took him aside and they gave him instruction. In Acts 18, verse 24, it says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And later on in verse 28, it says that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This man was a powerful preacher and he got his start in Ephesus. This would be uh, maybe similar to, to thinking about somebody like Billy Graham or, or, or Charles Stanley or John Piper or some great name. And, and you say, hey, I remember they went to this church. This is where they were raised up. This is where they were discipled and taught. And now, and now they're well known. Apollos was such a great name in the early church that he rivaled uh, in popularity with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. So you remember the church in Corinth. There were groups and factions, and this was a sinful thing. This wasn't a good thing. Uh, But some of them were saying, I'm of Paul. And some were saying, I'm of Peter. And others were saying, I'm of Apollos. So you know that Apollos must have been a very eloquent, powerful preacher for him to rival the Apostle Paul and to rival the Apostle Peter who had both seen the Lord. And Apollos got his start in the church at Ephesus. Paul himself spent three years. Paul traveled around to the different churches on his missionary journeys, but he stayed in Ephesus longer than anywhere else. He stayed there for three years preaching and teaching in Ephesus. So in Acts chapter 19... Verse 8, it says this, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily, every day, in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, on a daily basis, as we're going to see here in a minute, not just for two years, but actually for three years, the Apostle Paul was teaching this church. So just imagine, you all got to put up with me and I do the best that I can, but just imagine for day after day, you're meeting together with the Apostle Paul and he's teaching you and training you in the word. He spent additional time. Training and teaching the elders or the pastors of the church of Ephesus. We see that in Acts 20, uh, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, uh, and he goes on to teach. And then verse 28, we'll jump down. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Then he tells the elders this. He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
You might have different pastors that went to different seminaries and have different uh, qualifications. I can assure you that nobody has better qualifications than spending three years, night and day, with the Apostle Paul being trained and taught. But not only the Apostle Paul, not only Apollos, but, but Paul left, when he did leave, he left Timothy there, his understudy, to teach and to, to serve in the church at, at Ephesus. And, and he gave Timothy the responsibility to guard the church from doctrinal error. So in 1 Timothy 1, we see this. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. And in 1 Timothy 6.20 says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. As you're there in Ephesus, make sure that people are not leaving the faith. Make sure that they're not getting off track with the doctrine that I left there. That I taught those people and I taught those pastors and those elders there. Make sure that you're guarding that. Not only that, but you, you need to raise up other people who know the truth and trust this same truth that I've given to you, Timothy. Find other faithful men and you entrust it to them so that we can make sure this this church at Ephesus is strong. It's rooted in the truth. So in 2 Timothy 2.2, he says this, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Not only that, as if that wasn't enough, Church history tells us that the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, actually served as an elder in Ephesus in the latter part of his life. It's likely that the uh, that John's epistles that we know first and second and third John, these were probably written during his time at Ephesus. In both 2nd and 3rd John, uh, in the introduction to those, the greeting, John refers to himself as the elder. And that was probably a title he had uh, as the result of being an elder or a pastor in the church at Ephesus. And like the Apostle Paul and like Timothy, John too would have encouraged them to guard the truth and be faithful about the things that they have, have been taught. So in 1st John 2, 21, He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In 2 John 1, 4, he said, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. The truth was important to Apollos and to Paul and to Timothy. And it it was important to John as well. It's likely that John was even living in Ephesus when he was arrested and exiled to this island of Patmos 60 miles away. You think about this, and there's no doubt in my mind that this church in Ephesus knew the truth. They were rock solid on the doctrines of the faith. They, they knew the gospel. They knew the scripture. They knew the word. Not only do we see this morning the pedigree of the, the church of Ephesus, we also see their perseverance. It had been some 40 years since the Apostle Paul first established this church in Ephesus until the time when John wrote the book of Revelation and sent it to them. And they had faced many attacks from Satan during that time on multiple different fronts. And yet they had been faithful. We see this in Revelation 2. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. They had endured. And again in verse verse 3 of this same 
chapter, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. Not only did they have a rich pedigree, they also persevered in this truth. They were enduring the, the, the trials and the persecution and the attacks of Satan. They were persevering in the face of persecution, first of all. This church was born in a time of persecution from the start uh, that we see in the book of Acts all the way till now for for four decades. They had been faithful and they had persevered when Paul first started preaching in Ephesus. uh, There was a a riot there. We see this in Acts 19 gives the account of how this unfolded. It says about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made Silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These had gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And so just what the background here, in in Ephesus, there was this great temple to Artemis. This was sort of their local regional god. This This was part of what it meant to be from Ephesus is that you worshiped Artemis. And now Paul is going around and he's saying there's only one Lord. There's only one God. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only Lord. And people were believing the gospel. They're being saved. And as they're being saved, they're getting rid of their idols and they're turning away from paganism. And now this, this Demetrius, who's a silversmith, this was his job, making these idols. It was a lucrative business. And, and he's saying he's gathering the, the trade unions together. And he's saying, this Paul is going to put us out of business. And not only is he going to put us out of business, not only are we going to lose money, but he's bringing disgrace on this, this God who's, who's our God. We've got the temple of Artemis here in Ephesus. And people are going to stop coming to this if we don't shut it down. There's not... Uh, There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great God Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. So they grabbed these two guys who were with Paul and they rush into the stadium. They're, they're, ready, to, they're ready to kill them. And we, if you were to read on, their crisis is adverted there uh, for the moment. But no doubt this persecution continued. And over the next four decades, Christians had to live in a city where they would have been, there would have been constant fr- friction and persecution. Uh, they would have constantly been hounded about the fact that they didn't worship Artemis. This, this is our God. What, what, this is the God of the Ephesians. And you're an Ephesian and you don't worship Artemis? This was a disgrace. You can imagine that any time people were saved and rejected the paganism of this city, a new round of opposition would come. Every time there was a revival and people started being saved, they they would stir it up again. And they'd have to face this opposition for 40 years. They've been doing this. And the Apostle John writes and he says, I know your endurance. 
I know you're standing strong in the truth. I know that you're not giving in in the face of this persecution. And I encourage you to continue to do that. But not only did they persevere in the face of persecution, they persevered in the face of perversion as well. When Satan attacks us, he never just attacks us in one way. He never has just a single strategy. He comes from different fronts. And in the case of many of these churches that we're going to find out, not only did he not only did he attack them with persecution, but he also came at them with the idea of compromising the truth. Uh, So if we can't get you by simply opposing you and, and bringing persecution, well, then why don't you just compromise? Life would be so much easier. You you can imagine the temptation, right? You've grown up in Ephesus. Artemis is your God. When you went to school, you were taught about Artemis. You were taught all about her and and all about what it meant to be an Ephesian and to worship Artemis. And you had special holidays that you got together with your family and celebrated this, this great God. To be an Ephesian and to live in Ephesus was to worship Artemis. So you can imagine some people saying, you know, I want to follow Christ. But my family has this tradition of going to the Temple of Artemis every Saturday. And I, yeah, I just can't give that up. I don't want to miss out on that. It's, it's not about worshiping Artemis, right? It's just about being with family. I'm going to be at church with you on Sunday, uh, but we can worship Artemis too. We don't have to give up. Uh, these, there's not really any rivalry here. You know, my parents would just be so heartbroken if I didn't celebrate Artemis Day anymore. We believe in Jesus, but we don't have to completely walk away from everything else, do we? It's not that serious. It's just kind of for fun. We, we kind of know Artemis isn't a real God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. But, but it's it kind of is family tradition. So we can maybe begin to compromise. And that's what would happen in some of these other churches. Like in Pergamum. Uh, he he uh, criticizes the church at Pergamum because they had done that very thing. They had given in to the teaching of Balaam in verse 14. You say... You see, that that was an Old Testament figure uh, that taught Balak, the the Moabite king. Uh, Well, if you can't if you can't curse Israel and defeat them with an army, then what you need to do is introduce some other God to them, because once once they begin worshiping other gods, uh, God's blessing will be removed from them. And that's what's happening in Pergamon. They're worshiping God and someone else. And that's the temptation, not only uh, to to crack or to crumble under the face of persecution but under under this idea of perversion but but despite that temptation john writes to them and says you've been faithful you haven't done that i'm, I'm going to write to pergamum and some of these other churches and i'm going to criticize them about that but ephesus you have stayed strong you haven't cracked under persecution and you've remained faithful even against the temptation of perversion we see this again in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You know the truth, and you're not giving in to these, to these compromises, these people that say there's a halfway. You're not giving in to that. And then in verse 6 again, yet this you have, I would encourage you about this good thing that you're doing. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the, the idea there is probably this idea of compromise again, worshiping Christ, but worshiping other gods, this syncretism of, of two different uh, religions. And John says, you've been strong. You, you have persevered in the face of persecution and in the face of perversion. So the Ephesians had stayed committed 
to the truth. Well, what is the problem with Ephesus then? What is the problem? What is it that Jesus calls them to repent? And here we see, and I think it's important to point out in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The, the lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is here pictured as walking among the churches. And then in verse 2, he says, I know your works. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He knows the condition of His church. He's walking in the midst of His churches. He knows what's good. He knows what's bad. He has knowledge about that. And it's Him, as we saw last week, it's Him who is writing these letters to these churches, these commendations and these, uh, these criticisms. So He says, I know what's going on. I want to commend you about these good things, but I've got some things against you. I've got some things where, where you're not doing as you ought to do and you need to repent. Well, what is the problem with this Ephesus church? We would think if you said this, there's this church that's facing persecution and man, they're standing strong and, and they're not giving in uh, to, to uh, the flavor of the day. They're, they're not going along with the culture. They're standing strong. They're not compromising the truth. We would say that's a good church. That's a solid church. But Jesus says, I've got something against you. I'm walking in the midst of this church. And I see and I know what's going on in this church. And I've got something against you. What is it? Verse 4, he tells us, But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They've abandoned their love for the Lord. They haven't abandoned the faith. They haven't compromised the truth. They're standing strong. But their love is gone. Their love for the Lord has disappeared. They've, they've walked away from that love. That love with, that they had when they first came to Christ. When they first felt the joy of their salvation. When, when the Lord first saved them. When the Lord first did this work of, uh, 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 this great work of establishing this church in Ephesus. And all the miracles that were done. They've, they've gotten to 40 years later now. And now it's just not as impressive anymore. Their, their hearts are no longer inflamed with love for the Lord. There's, there's not that passion there. They're, they're still holding to the same confession of faith. They, they are still standing strong on the doctrine that they believe. But in their heart, they've abandoned the love that they once had for the Lord and for others. Their passion for the Lord has cooled to the point that it was almost non-existent. They had... Abandon it. Jesus taught that the two greatest commandments were to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this, this lack of love that they had, this cooling off of love that they had really affected both of those areas. First, they had abandoned their love for God. They had abandoned their love for God. They, they had continued the outward form of worship, but without any, without any inner reality. They were strictly holding to the doctrine about God, but they didn't know God. They had fallen into the all too common trap of cold, dead orthodoxy. They believed the right things, but their heart no longer held a love for the Lord. You know, it's so easy for us, isn't it? To make Christianity a religion which is essentially just about checking off certain boxes, giving your assent to certain doctrines, saying, yes, I believe that. And nothing more. But what we see in the New Testament is that Christianity is so much more than that. It is a living relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a relationship of love. Now, 
We need to be careful because it is so important to hold to the truth. We don't want to deny that. And, and here Christ commends this church. Good job for holding to the truth. But if all you're doing is holding to a certain set of principles and beliefs, you're missing out on this whole other aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be a Christian. It is so much more than that. We know that experience, don't we, where, where you simply have a head knowledge, but you do not know the Lord experientially. You don't love Him. You listen to sermons with disinterest because you've, you've heard it all before. Sermons rarely ever bring conviction anymore or joy or peace. You, you sit through them. In fact, you, you can't remember the last time you left church feeling anything except urgency to be the first to get to the restaurant. You read religious books with caution to make sure that the author's in the right camp, but you haven't read anything in a long time that excited you about God. You no longer are in awe of His grace and His mercy. The praise and worship songs that once gave you chills as you worship the Lord no longer produce any feeling at all. Others of you meticulously listen to the new praise and worship songs because you suspect that they might introduce some leaven of heresy into our worship. But you're no longer moved to say amen or to raise your hands in praise to the Lord or to weep at the beauty of the gospel. You've got all the facts straight, but your heart is as cold as ice to the Lord. You could easily explain what it means to be saved and how to be a Christian but you find it difficult to urge someone and to plead with them to be saved because you don't have that kind of passion for the Lord anymore. You could teach a Sunday school class on sanctification, but your affections for God are not strong enough to actually cause you to kill sin in your own life. There's no emotion in worship anymore, not because you never get emotional about anything, but because the truth of God just doesn't pull at your heart the way it once did. You still shout and holler. You, you, would, you would come unglued if the Wildcats beat Duke come March. But the thought of salvation and an eternal home in heaven with God no longer excites you. You used to show up for, for prayer meetings and, and you were faithful because you wanted time and communion with the Lord. But now the thought of a restful night at home just seems a, a little more appealing. You used to volunteer to teach children's church because you desperately wanted the next generation of children to know your great God. But He doesn't seem so great anymore, does He? At least not great enough for you to sacrifice your time. Don't get me wrong, you could debate with an atheist or agnostics. You, you're good at posting memes about false prophets. You haven't abandoned the truth. It's just that that's all that it is for you anymore. It's just a set of beliefs, a truth. You have no communion or very little communion with our Lord. When I think about this kind of experiential relationship, my mind automatically goes to the Psalms because I think we see in them the, the kind of living relationship that this is to be. It's not just signing the dotted line that I believe these ten doctrines. It's something more than that. Listen to some of these psalms that, that I'll read here in just a minute and ask yourself, do these resonate? Are these true to where I am with the Lord? Are these descriptive of where my heart is with the Lord? Or has my love grown cold like it has in the uh, church of Ephesus? Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants 
for flowing stream. So my so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you long for fellowship with the Lord like that? Do you, do you long to meet together with God's people and to worship Him? Do you, want to talk, do you want to talk with Him in the same way that you want a cold drink of water on a hot day? That's what it means to have this love, this, this living relationship. Lord, my, my heart longs to spend time in fellowship with You. Are you having your quiet times each day? Or are you looking for excuses and looking for reasons? Or maybe it's been so long you don't even need reasons anymore not to be in the Word and not to be in prayer. Maybe this has just become the way of life for you. You show up once a week at church and you get your religious fix, but there's no relationship Monday through Saturday. Your heart is not longing for the Lord. That's what's going on in Ephesus. They hadn't abandoned the truth, but their love was cold. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know the goodness of the Lord? I'm not asking you. Can, can you defend the doctrine of, uh, of the attribute of God's goodness from Scripture? Can you go to Matthew and, and show how God is good to the just and, and on the unjust? Can you, can you go to the book of Psalms and defend this, this attribute of God in a theological way? I'm asking you, do you want to say to people like the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know that the Lord is good in your heart? Do you have that experience? About Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you love God's Word? like that? What's your attitude toward the Bible? Because your attitude, attitude toward the Bible is reflective of where your heart is and where your relationship with the Lord is. Do you use the Bible simply like a resource of facts that you can pull out and win a debate when, it, when some subject comes up? Or is it like a letter to you from a beloved friend? And, and can you say with the psalmist here, your words are sweet to me. I long to be in the Word of God. I long to read and hear about the salvation that I have in Christ. I long to read and to hear about what God has done for me through Christ. Is your, is your reading of the Bible informative or inflaming? Are you looking for facts or is your, is your love for God and your passion, is it being stoked as you read the Word of God? Or how about Psalm 95? Verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him and song, with songs of praise. Or Psalm 66, 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are Your deeds. Do these passages are, are are they reflective of the way that you worship or do you stand there cold and unmoved uncaring unpassionate about what god has done for you or is this or is there joy in your heart let us sing with joy to the lord let's let us tell about his great deeds are you are you still impacted by the great deeds that god has done in your life or does, do they seem so long in the rearview mirror that, that it almost seems unreal like it didn't happen are you still moved by the God who reached down and saved you? So much so that you, you raise your hand and you praise the Lord and you say amen as we're singing. 
Whether you say it verbally, you say it in your heart. How about Psalm 100, verse 2? Serve the Lord with gladness. Do you serve the Lord happily with gladness? Or do you do, you do so begrudgingly? Well, I'll serve. They're wanting me to sit in the nursery again. And, uh, well, blah. You know, I don't really want to do that. I don't really feel like coming to church. It would be so much better to sleep in. I guess I, I'm going to come because I know I'll get a text from Andrew on Monday or Sunday afternoon if I'm not there. Uh, but uh, I really don't want to be here. How is this descriptive of your worship of the Lord, of your service to Him, that you serve Him with gladness? When you love someone, you, you serve them with gladness. You want to do this. For too many of us, I'm afraid that our love, like the Ephesian church, has grown cold. You, you get the point. And I just ask you, what is the state of your heart this morning? You're still here. You haven't abandoned the truth. You haven't walked away from the faith. You haven't gone off the deep end. But are you like the middle-aged couple who, who won't get divorced because they believe it's wrong? They've got that commitment, but they also don't feel any attraction to their spouse anymore. Oh, sure, you would never think of having an affair. You're, you're not unfaithful, but it's also just as unlikely that you would make passionate love with your spouse because that's the state of your relationship at this point. And maybe you're like that. Maybe you'd never walk away from the faith. Maybe you'd never walk away from the church. Maybe it's such a tradition that's ingrained in you that you would never stop coming to church or, or walk away from Christianity. But for you, it is cold and it is dead. Is that the condition of your heart? Well, this wasn't only, it wasn't only their love for God that had cooled off. It was also their love for other believers. The problem has gone deeper than that. It isn't just that their love for God had dimmed. Your love for others has declined as well. This church, as I said, had been around for 40 years at least. Four decades. And no doubt at this point they were well familiar with, with each other. So much so, maybe perhaps too much so. They might have been too well acquainted. You know, you know how that works. They knew all of the faults and all of the failures of everyone in the church. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps that's what's going on in this church. They had left their first love, the love that they had for first, for, at first, their love for God and their love for others. Maybe that's what's going on for some of you. You, you know sister so-and-so talks too much and you just try to avoid her. You know, that one brother who acts so spiritual, but you know, because you've been around long enough that he doesn't give and he doesn't serve and it just drives you crazy. You remember that one business meeting about 10 years ago uh, and how that one group acted so ugly. You remember how that one sister said something so unkind to you when you were struggling with infertility. You know how you feel excluded from that one group, uh, the way they make you feel like you've never quite made it to the inside. These are the kinds of things that happen over time, over four decades in this church. And they build up to the point where it's just easier to stay at a distance, isn't it? It's easier just to kind of draw back. And I used to be really plugged in. I used to be really involved. But it's just gotten so ugly. And the relationship is so difficult. I'm, I'm still going to church, but I just don't want to spend much time with those people. That's what's happened in the Ephesian church. They've allowed these offenses and other problems to cool their love for fellow believers. And I wonder if that's happened 
in this church, thank to the fact that the Apostle John wrote this. And John was likely in Ephesus when he wrote his epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And it's no wonder if he's in this kind of environment where, where people have lost this love that he writes to them and encourages them over and over again. In fact, the, the theme of 1st John is, is really to love in one respect. He writes in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And as you read the epistle of 1, 2, and 3 John, you just see this refrain over and over again. We need to continue to love. Well, what we need to recognize when we read these New Testament letters, they're written in a particular situation. There's a reason that John wrote about love when he's in Ephesus. Likely the same reason he's telling them, you've left your first love. You've abandoned it. And I wonder if, if the apostle was to write to us specifically, I have no doubt that perhaps this would be one of the things that he would address. You all, you are falling out of love. You've fallen out of this love that you have. You've abandoned it. Uh, the love that you have for God, but also the love for others. Relationships are difficult, but we're commanded to love one another. But this love for other, it wasn't just that their love for other believers had cooled off. Their love for unbelievers had cooled off too. One of the things that dies when our love for the Lord dies is that our love for the lost dies as well. When you're no longer excited about your own salvation, it's difficult to be concerned about the salvation of others. At one time, this church at Ephesus had been had such a strong missional uh, focus. They, they had been reaching out so much so, right, that they almost shut down uh, the trade unions. They almost put these, these idol makers out of worship, out of, out of work, rather. Uh, that's, how, that's how zealous they were for spreading the gospel, but now their love had cooled and they just weren't that concerned about these pagans anymore. You know, they just need to believe they're so wicked and, and it's so easy to develop this kind of mindset of, really a hatred for the world rather than a love for the world. And that's what had happened to them at this point. They had abandoned their first love. They hadn't seen anyone saved or baptized in a, a couple of years. They had abandoned the love they had at first and it was evident, evident in their relationship with God, their relationship with other believers, and their relationship with the unsaved. But the fourth thing that we see this morning is the prophecy to Ephesus. The prophecy to Ephesus. What does he call them to do? In verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so he calls them to repentance. This means what he's saying here when he says, I'll come and remove the candlestick, uh, this lampstand. It, it, it's a threat of to come in judgment, not the second coming of Christ, but to, to come in judgment and to remove their status as a church. Christ is threatening to come in judgment and the result will be that the church will cease to exist. This church, we would say they have so many good things going on. They're holding to the truth. They're facing persecution. They haven't perverted the truth or compromised it. But yet, because they've grown cold in their love, this was serious enough to say, if you don't remember where you've come from and repent, I will remove your status as a church. Now that's a strong word to a church that had so many good things going on. 
We might think as a church uh, for ourselves, Union Baptist Church, we, we might think, well, as long as we're not walking away from the faith or going off into some heresy or making some serious compromise with the world, then everything is okay. But just like a marriage is in serious trouble when, when you no longer love each other, so too the church whose love for the Lord and love for others has grown cold is in a dangerous position. Well, what's, what's the way forward? If you're here this morning and you say, that's true of me. I've lost my love for other believers and I've, I've grown cold in my love toward the Lord. What does He call me to do? First of all, He says, remember where you've fallen. Sometimes that, that's what we need to do. We need to reflect back on where we've been. We need to reflect back on the, the victories that God has accomplished in our life. We need to reflect back on the salvation that we have. We need to reflect back on where we once were, perhaps spiritually, when we were faithfully walking with the Lord and we had a passion for the Lord and a passion for our fellow believers. And we need to remember that. There's some of you here who have been saved longer than I've been alive. And for you, the, the temptation is just to put it into cruise control and sit back and relax and say, you know, I'm just not. We even talk about that. Like people who are saved when they're first saved, oh, they'll settle down after a while. And, and we do, don't we? We settle down. But that's not a good thing. And that's not the right thing. We ought to continue to grow in our love for the Lord. It ought to grow more, not less. And just like, again, like a married couple, that love changes over time. Uh, maybe the infatuation wears off, but that love grows deeper and stronger and truer. I can say of my wife, there's ways in which we've grown comfortable with each other, but, but our love today is stronger than it was on the day that we got married. And we need to remember that. We need to repent and turn away from this. The, the fact that He calls us to repent means that cold-heartedness, this lack of love, is something that we, that, that we factor into. It's something that we allow there are things that we do and don't do that bring this on. Sometimes we talk about love as if it just happens. We say, I fell into love and I fell out of love. Yeah, I've fallen out of love with my wife. People tell me that, uh, you know, when you're counseling in, in marriage, we, we've just fallen out of love. And, and what we do when we talk like that is we kind of remove the responsibility that we have as if it just happened. I, I can't do anything. I'm just falling out of love. But we, we bear responsibility for letting that love grow cold. And we need to repent of that, whether it's in your marriage or, or whether it's in your relationship with other believers or in your relationship to the Lord. You have a responsibility to stoke the flames of your love for the Lord. And so He calls us to repent. We need to repent this morning of allowing our love to grow cold. We need to perhaps get back in the Word on a consistent basis. We need to begin once again to make sure that we're having quiet time, that we're praying to the Lord. We need to once again begin to meditate on what God has done for us. We need to do, uh, do these works. He, he says repent and turn back. And then there's the promise to Ephesus and the promise to us this morning in verse 7 as we close. He who has an ear to hear, uh, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here is the promise of eternal life. And so he, he holds out this promise for them. To the one who conquers. 
And I would hold that out to you this morning. Sometimes we say once saved, always saved. And we just sit back and relax. And once I make this profession of faith, everything's good. And I just put it in cruise control. The Bible doesn't talk that way. We do believe in eternal security. We do believe that if the Lord saves you, He will keep you. But you bear a responsibility. Just like you had to repent and believe, so you need to continue to walk in faithfulness. He says, to the one who conquers will be given to eat. The tree of eternal life. The, the idea is there, if you don't conquer, if you give in to this apathy, if you give in to this cold-heartedness, you will not eat of the tree of life. The tree of life is this picture of eternal life. It goes back all the way to the book of Genesis. And so this is held out this morning. Don't just think, well, I'm okay. I can continue to sit in cruise control and everything will be okay. I'll just kind of, I'll just be in cruise control on my way to heaven. I'm not going to be as zealous and as passionate as I once was but but what you see in this passage is salvation is on the line this eternal life is at stake to the one who conquers will be given to eat of the tree of life the bible knows nothing of a christian who makes a profession of faith and then walks away from the lord and, and no longer serves the lord and then goes to heaven that is not found in scripture to the one who conquers I will give of the tree of life. I wonder as we just close this morning, if you're here this morning and your love has grown cold, I would encourage you to begin to take steps in the other direction. You bear the responsibility to stoke those flames. And I would encourage you to do that this morning. If I could have our ushers come forward at this time, we're going to go into...